I'm sure you've heard the old adage, no religion or politics discussed at the dinner table. But I tend to fall more in line with G.K. Chesterton, who said, if you're not allowed to talk about religion and politics, there's nothing left worth talking about. Church, you know I don't do politics. And I'm going to tell you something in regards to my perspective that might bother some of you. I don't even like that we have an American flag on the stage. I love the United States of America. But if we were in China, we would still be doing the gospel work. So the issue for me is not whether or not I love my country. The issue for me is, is there anything that compares to my love of Jesus? And the answer to that is a resounding no, which means there are people on the right and left in the middle that sometimes don't like my perspective on things because my goal is not to fall into a party's line, but to fall into the line with Jesus. Now, I've never said, let's take that flag down. But I share that with you so that you can understand where I'm coming from today. I don't talk a lot about politics, and that's why. But I'm going to address it today, but not politics in particular. Rather, what I want to address are scriptural principles that will help us understand both our political situation today in the United States of America, 2022, and how we as Christians ought to respond to it. Because the reality of the matter is we are in a very interesting situation today. I hope to offer you both clarity and conviction because, again, we are in a very interesting time. As Christians, we have the scriptures to educate us and guide us and lead us in a way that honors God and shows us how to love our neighbor, a phrase that has been emptied of its value and refilled with a meaning that was never intended in the Bible. Wear your mask, love your neighbor. Take your shot, love your neighbor. Be nice to the trans community, love your neighbor. On top of that, as Americans, we have the Constitution, we have the Declaration of Independence, we have the Bill of Rights, which afford us, as citizens of the United States of America, certain inalienable rights. Amen? And we're glad for that. We cherish that. But herein lies the tension. That is, the tension for those of us who are simultaneously citizens of two places. We are citizens of a sacred place and citizens of a secular place. St. Augustine called it the city of God and the city of man. Martin Luther referred to it as the two kingdoms. Abraham Kuyper referred to it as sphere sovereignty, which is to say every sphere has its own authority, but over every single sphere is whom? God. We grow up, you and I having been born or having legally immigrated to the great, albeit imperfect, United States of America. And somewhere along our line in our life, God's Spirit convicts us and regenerates us, and we place our faith in Jesus Christ, and we are what Jesus calls born again. 
Now we aren't only citizens of the United States. Now we are citizens of the kingdom of God. As Christians, for us, this is where the conflict occurs. How do we, you and I, manage and navigate this delicate position in which we find ourselves? I want to talk to you today about being, and here's my title, subject to the governing authorities. Not subject to the authorities in a way that relegates God to our politics. But in a way that places our Christian faith and principles at the helm, at the center of our lives, so that we don't get ourselves caught in a situation where we say, well, this is what I believe, but to everybody else, well, whatever they want. I want to talk to you about the scriptural principles in Romans chapter 13 that I believe will help us aim at allowing our faith to inform our politics, our responsibilities, and the influence that God has entrusted to us with the gospel for those people who are around us. Because as citizens of the United States of America, we belong to a republic that grants us the right to say what we believe and to vote accordingly. So if you leave here today having not been somehow, some way offended, I have failed you. Regardless of what side of the issue you fall on, my goal today is to send you away thinking and convicted about things that perhaps you never thought or were convicted about before. And may God receive the glory. Amen? Let's begin where the Bible begins. In Romans chapter 13, we're going to begin with this point, verses 1 through 3. We should be submissive. We should be submissive. I'm going to say that again. We should be submissive. I want you to read the text with me again. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from whom? From God. And those, that is the governing authorities that exist, have been instituted by whom? By God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. There's a couple of things here that I want us to note, and of course we're going to move forward and progress through the text as we move forward and progress through the message. So I want us to start here in the first few verses that we've read aloud, and I want you to note first and foremost this, our submission is based on God's sovereignty. Our submission, God help me not to lose my tongue, our submission is based on God's sovereignty. Paul says, look at the text again, there is no authority except from whom? Except from God. Listen, this is where we start, church. God is sovereign. 
God is sovereign, and we can disagree with this or that, but we've got to start where Paul begins, which is this. God is sovereign. It doesn't matter if you're in the United States or if you're in Canada or if you're in Mexico or if you're in Russia or Nigeria or China. It doesn't matter where you are. Listen to my words. God is sovereign. We don't start with earthly truths, certainly not politically truths, political truths, and try to reason our way to heaven. We start with heavenly truths, and we reason our way down to earth. And when we do, first and foremost, we learn that we live under a creator God who is sovereign over all things. Everything that he has placed over us to manage us, to guide us, to protect us, government, family, church, etc. I'm going to share with you a handful of texts. They're going to come up on the screen here. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let, let who? The earth. Not the United States of America. Let the earth rejoice. But yes, the United States of America. But we are not looking for a minimized kingdom. We're not looking for a particular kingdom. We're looking for the entire world to give glory to God. This is why we do missions. Because there are people groups in the world not giving God his due glory. And therefore we send people to tell others about Jesus. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heaven. And what does he do? Whatever he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 144 verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout how many generations, church? All generations. Which is a biblical paradigm this idea of generations. Many of us have forgotten that, which is why our country is in the shape it's in. We have forgotten the weight of legacy. Friends, God is sovereign over the world, and ultimately we will answer to him. But secondly, and especially, God is sovereign over the authorities. Paul continues, look at the text again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities because there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is to say, God is sovereign over America too. Even Jesus, when he was being tried by Pontius Pilate, said to Pilate, and I quote, you would have no authority. Did you get that? Jesus said to Pontius Pilate while he was on trial, you would have no authority were it not given to you by heaven. We know that Pilate misused his God-given authority, and it led to his condemnation. John Stott said that what's meant here is that, quote, all human authority derives from God's authority. So you can follow this rationale. No God, no godly authority. No godly authority. To whom do we answer? To whom does our government answer? This isn't just true in general. It's true in our situation. The situation that's occurring in our country is not a surprise to God. 
If anything, follow me here, it's God's allowance that has landed our country in the moral and ethical chaos that it's in. We have been socially decaying for decades because we've been spiritually rotten for longer. And so to speak, just as God gave the Israelites quail because they complained and groaned that they wanted meat for so long, and he gave them so much of the meat that they became sick of it, I think God is giving us what we've asked for. And what's more, the line continues to be pushed. It used to be, what does it matter what I do in my own life? And now it is, not only must you accept it, but I will indoctrinate your children in public environments too. And nowhere else is this made more clear in the abysmal leadership that our educational institutions and government are offering to us. We have teachers whose sole purpose is to indoctrinate their students, not to educate them with their views and their politics, and we have politicians who are lifelong politicians who have never actually held a job in the public sector. We are riddled with ungodly leaders. And we see this, and we, as what I would call conservatives, I don't care about Republican, Democrat, I'm talking about conservative principles, we should feel the weight and burden of the conflict. Because even those who would vote according to the lines that we would agree with politically in regards to policy, well, they're not very good people, are they? The politicians, the politicians are politicians. Surprise. We act as Christians like when we vote for somebody, we're choosing a pastor, and we're not. We're choosing politicians. So we're in a mess. We're in a mess because God is sovereign, and he is allowing us, I think, to get what we've asked for. Thirdly, we should be submissive to the authorities. Paul says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, this applies not only to us, by the way. The assumption is that since God is sovereign over all things, we should be respectful of the government under which we live because God is sovereign over that government too. And just as we will respond to God and give an account for the life that we've lived, so will Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It's unfair that the media has put a line there where you're either a Democrat or you're a Trumper. I could care less about Donald Trump. He's a sexually immoral, crude man. I agree with his policies a whole lot more than the guy that can't find his way off the stage. He's fallen so far left that the Roman Catholic Church will not even allow him to participate in a, in a mass. So I don't care if he says he's Catholic. Even the church to which he belongs says, you're not really Catholic. 
Politicians are politicians. As far as policy is concerned, I don't have any problem with the conservative policies. I do have a problem with the way that they're carried out. Every single office that is above us by way of authority should be dignified. We should not, you and I, be put in a situation to vote for somebody who would be president who I would never hire in this church. But the reality of the matter is we're facing that each and every day, aren't we? Where we're having to navigate this idea of God is sovereign over all things, God is sovereign over the government, and I'm in subjection to these things. And how do I negotiate these truths without compromising my convictions so that if somebody says, did you vote for this guy or that guy? Or this woman or that woman? It becomes a Christian incident. How do I navigate this water? This unfortunately has been wrenched out of context to the point that some governments in history have used verses like this to say, you're a Christian, you got to submit, that's what the Bible says. And I was not a great kid before I met Jesus. I was a, a rebel. And I think when I met Jesus, it got worse. This is one of those texts where we have to understand the context of the entire Bible. This is a general rule. This is a broad principle. And it's not saying that we should disobey God if the government commands us to say or to do something that is contrary to his word. Did you get that? One author writes this, quote, Whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. Or to quote the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. When Pharaoh ordered the children to be killed, the Hebrew wives disobeyed. When the Medo-Persian Empire commanded the citizens to pray only to King Darius, Daniel went upstairs and threw open his windows and prayed toward Jerusalem because he would not be told to whom he could pray. When Herod the Great commanded the Magi to tell him where baby Jesus lay, they went home, the scripture says, by another route. When the Jewish leaders on the one hand and the Roman Empire on the other commanded Paul to stop preaching the gospel, he continued to preach the gospel and testified of God's work in his life to government officials like Felix and Festus and Agrippa eventually landing in Rome. You can read these examples yourselves and these accounts yourselves in your Bible. We as Christians are not the first to have a conflict with the secular. Here's the point. We are to be submissive. But we should also be responsible. That's the next point I want to share with you. 
verses 3 through 7. You can look at it with your eyes. Secondly, not only is God sovereign, but therefore we are to submit, respect, etc. And in view of his authority over all things and all people, ourselves, we are to be responsible. I want to talk to you what I, about what I mean by that. Look at Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. You can read with your eyes. It says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We might refer to this section as the Christian conscience. Here I want to talk to you about our responsibility. There are two things that the government or government officials are supposed to do. Number one, they are supposed to reward the good. And number two, they are supposed to punish the bad. They are supposed to reward the good and they are supposed to punish the bad. In fact, the phrase, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, is of special note. In his commentary on Romans, John Murray writes this, the sword can be wielded to execute punishment that falls short of death. But... To exclude the right of the death penalty when the nature of the crime calls for such is totally contrary to that which the sword signifies and executes. I'm going to pause for a second so you can think about it. This is an important note. In other words, church, there was an expectation of the death penalty in the ancient world. And in my opinion, there still should be. No, not each and every case calls for the death penalty. This verse is not saying, if this, then this must absolutely be done. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying it is a reality. Because to neglect to execute justice in our culture and in our society today, it has started a wave of momentum that in some cities is absolutely impossible to stop. Now you may ask, is that a secular principle? Romans chapter 13, it is in the Bible, but Paul is talking about a secular ruler, isn't he? In this case, he's talking about Rome, Caesar. Well, that's a great question, and I want you to make a note in the notes that you're taking today of this verse, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because God made man in his own image. Now, you see, Genesis happens long before 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which is to say this command that God gave to Noah in Genesis chapter 9 was a principle that would exist for you and me before the law of Moses. He doesn't base it on law. He bases it on creation. What does he say? If man sheds blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made him in his image. This command, again, which comes before the law, sets a principle in motion that, in my opinion, should still be recognized today by the powers that be. Part of the issue that we have is an issue with penology. We believe that we can fix people, that we can rehabilitate people. Humanism has completely compromised the way that we see life today. Humanism has crept into society, and we began to believe that the penologists could actually reform criminals and prisoners in their prisons. It simultaneously became unthinkable to practice capital punishment on someone who had killed other human beings while the practice of abortion became more and more acceptable and more and more flexible. How these two issues can be held in juxtaposition, I have no idea. And I'm aware of the fact that Roe v. Wade has been pushed from the federal courts back to the state courts. And in the first five minutes that it was pushed back to the state, all the states started saying, we're winding this thing down. We're winding this thing down. And praise God for that. But my point is this. How diluted and twisted and perverted does thinking have to be to kill a baby in the womb, but to spare a murderer. That's what humanism gives you. That's not Christian thought. Christian thought, I've already shown you in more than one place in the scriptures, tells you this. You are responsible. Nobody's responsible today, though, are they? Nobody's responsible today. You can do anything you want, whenever you want, and, and as long as you are liked by the, by the right people, you'll be fine. Now, we know that there are sometimes mitigating circumstances, and it would be foolish to say that every single case needs to end the exact same way. Justice is not that easy. Amen? Justice is challenging, but we're not saying in our time, America, 2022, we're not saying that justice is easy or difficult. We're saying that justice is not even being done. What do you do when justice isn't performed? When criminals are on the street hurting innocent people after having been arrested 20, 30, 40 times. This is where, as dual citizens of both the United States and the kingdom of God, it behooves us to lean into the biblical principles that God has given to us so that they are reflected in our political positions. 
Today, it's unattractive. So that the main media and leftists have grabbed the term Christian nationalism. That's the term they're using now. So that if you are somebody who is proud to be an American and who believes in the United States of America, but who also believes in Jesus Christ and that men are men and women are women and that it's a beautiful thing to raise a family and own a home and work hard, well, now you're a Christian nationalist. I don't care what they call you. You should not care what they call you either. What you should care about, however, is what God sees when he looks at your life. Don't worry about MSNBC or anybody else. Don't worry about any of that. Look at the scriptures and let it be your mirror. And ask yourself, am I living in such a way? Am I deciding in such a way? Am I voting in such a way that Christ would say, that reflects my purpose? Babies should be saved. Two healthy adults who were sexually irresponsible should become responsible and deal with their child. Criminals should be punished appropriately. If we believe the Bible, then this is part of our responsibility. If God has a standard, if God has an expectation, and if we live in a republic that affords us the right and privilege of placing our opinion on a ballot, then we must do it in a way that reflects not your neighbor, not this person, not that person, your principles in God's eyes. Quit with the idolatry. Well, I just think everybody should be able to do what they want. Thank you for getting us in the situation we're in. Be responsible to Christ and stop worrying about everybody else. Vote according to his glory. Now, some of these issues are delicate, and I can understand that. Joe, how, how would we vote in a situation like this or like that? And I understand some of these things require conversations and thoughts and discernment. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not arguing that I grant you that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the things that you know as a Christian you would never stand for. But as an American, you allow to pass. Part of the justice of God is seen in the fact that he has made men and women moral, culpable agents. He expects our obedience, church. You and I, we think, we act, we decide after weighing options, we love, we hate, we choose one way or another, and with God's help and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, we do all of this to his glory. Amen? But don't miss this. We are moral, culpable agents. Therefore, Christianity cannot be apolitical. Christianity cannot be apolitical. You must take your Christian convictions and put it on the paper. This is not an option. And you cannot be divided in soul and spirit on this issue. We have to speak the truth, and we have to live the truth. 
How can you and I in good conscience say that we are Christians who are speaking and living the truth while we neglect to engage in the warfare that our society, culture, and country have instigated against our morals? And you don't believe me because you want to be polite. But while you're being polite, they're going after your children. Wake up! Get in the fight. Engage. God is calling you to be the man or the woman that he's calling you to be biblically. Not in America's view. America can't even define what a woman is. Or won't. I don't care what they say. Wait five more minutes. They're losing their mind. I don't care what they do. I care what you do. I don't care what they say. I expect crazy people to act crazy. But I don't expect Christians to act like that. I expect Christians to act dignified. I expect Christians to be intelligent. I expect Christians to be discerning. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, the scripture says this. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify. And though he is a witness, whether he's seen it or come to know of the matter, yet he does not speak, he will bear his iniquity. There is no such thing, church, as I'm just trying to mind my own business. Biblically speaking, if you know the truth, you are required to speak the truth. If you know the truth and do not speak the truth, you're sinning. If you know the truth and you do not speak the truth, you are sinning. Biblically, it is not enough to stop stealing. You have to stop stealing, get a job, pay your own bills, and make enough money that you can give to those in need. That's Ephesians 4. That's a biblical principle. So, so often we sell ourselves short in the expectations that God has of us as moral culpable agents. It's not enough in God's eyes that we know the truth and sit down. It's not enough. We've got to speak up. We've got to represent, and we have to do it in such a way that it doesn't matter who's in office. What's right is right, help me out here, and what's wrong doesn't matter whether it's an R or a D. You've got to have enough integrity to call wrong wrong and right right if your Christianity will be considered legitimate. You know why so many people in the world today look at Christians and they go, the church is a joke? Because in many aspects, the church is a joke. We have to be willing to call sin, sin. We have to be willing to acknowledge what's good and what's right. Because we don't answer to either political party. Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, whatever. We answer to whom? We answer to God. 
This is one of the issues that as Christians, we get really conflicted about, isn't it? I mean, the reality of the matter is this, for example, and I have talked to other Christians about this, and this is an issue for me. I did not vote for Barack Obama. I don't believe that Barack Obama was an amazing president. That's my opinion. I don't care if you like it or not. But I will tell you something that Obama is. He's a faithful husband and he's a good father, which is more than I can say of some other presidents. As a Christian, that's my obligation. That's my responsibility. I cannot excuse sin that is inexcusable in God's eyes because somebody holds no policy position that I agree with. I'm making Christ out to be a hypocrite. That's why they're calling us Christian nationalists because we're not really faithful to Jesus. We just wanna know, are you against abortion? Yeah, do you like homosexuality? No, oh, you're a Christian then. You laugh because you know I'm telling you the truth. That's not my Christianity. And if you're here, I presume it's not yours either. But this is what we're up against, people. This is what we're up against. We're up against an ignorant and untruthful presentation of Christians and Christianity. And it breaks my heart to say this, but in a lot of ways, it's our fault. If we as Christians are going to hold to Christ, then according to Leviticus 5, according to Romans 13, we are to be witnesses to Christ and God's sovereignty first and foremost, not only in this building, but perhaps more importantly, outside of this building, in the world, and in our politics. Can you be a conscientious Christian? Either we are representing Christ at all times or we are not. Either our relationship with God informs our every decision or it does not. Either we are doing everything to God's glory or we are not. Look at what verse 7 says. In verse 7, Romans 13 again, verse 7, Paul writes this, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Church, God wants us to live, and I want us to live, as Christians and as a church, at First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge, in such a way that we don't know on anything because we do it right. So that even when people disagree with us, they can't help but dis disagree with us in a respectful way because that's how we carry ourselves. We don't call names. We don't do that here. We disagree and we argue, but we do it right. We do it with respect. If we fail to pay taxes, if we fail to give respect, 
if we fail to be honorable, if we fail to do any of these things, how can you and I have a strong witness for Jesus? This is why Congress is going after people like everybody on TBN. Because as a 501c3 organization, they don't pay any taxes, but they've got a G4 and two helicopters and their own airport. And Congress is saying, we're losing so much money. We're losing so much money on this church. This guy's got an airport, an airstrip in the back of his house. This other guy's driving a Rolls Royce. This other guy got his own helicopter for crying out loud. So I can preach the gospel, bro. I preach the gospel. You don't need a helicopter. When the government looks at the church, they look at a double-edged sword because Christians in our country are not being faithful to the gospel call of Jesus Christ. But will we? Will we pay taxes to whom it is due? Will we give respect to whom it is due? Will we honor those to whom honor should be given? One of the issues that we see in this matter is the issue of immigration. We are constantly painted out as people who hate people. My wife was born in Cuba. So my wife literally immigrated and the whole nine yards took the test. She's a citizen. But when somebody says something about immigrants, it always rubs me a little interesting. They quote verses like Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, which says, Treat the sojourner and the foreigner well because you were once sojourners in Egypt, which is true. But what these main media outlets forget to quote is Numbers 15, which says, There shall be one rule and one law for you and the sojourner. Come on, just come, come. But you got to do it legally. But they quote this verse and that verse because they don't want to stay legal. They want to line their pockets with votes. This is why Psalm chapter 50, verse 16 says what it says. And God says, to the wicked, the Lord says, what right do you have to put my word in your mouth? Every time one of these people who... I don't care, male, female, black, white, Hispanic, I don't care. You know, we live in Miami. We don't deal with this, right? We're not, I mean, look at our church. We're diverse. We're, we're, not, we're not talking about that. What I'm talking about is I don't care where they're coming from, what their background is, what their nationality or ethnicity is. I don't care what their, I don't care about any of those things. Every time somebody takes the Bible and uses it like that, it makes my blood boil because it makes us look ignorant. I'm not saying we are ignorant. I'm saying it makes us look ignorant because they take the Bible, they find a verse. How they find it, I don't know, because you know they're not reading this thing. And they shoot off this verse with such ignorance about the fact that there's another verse that says, that's not what that verse means, man. If we're going to go that way, by the way, the United States of America is not Israel, okay? So we're, we're not, we're not crisscrossing lines here. But the principle is the same. If you want us to be nice to sojourners and foreigners, we have no problem with that. But there's another verse in the, in the same collection of books that you're quoting that says, foreigners come, but you got to live by our rule. 
we have a way we do things. But they're not interested in that. And so they've created a situation in which there is no winning. We can't win. We, left, right, middle, there's no winning here. This situation is a dire situation. So when it comes to being responsible, when it comes to acknowledging God's sovereignty in all things, the next thing I want to ask, and we'll wrap up with this, is how? How can we accomplish this? I want to share with you a few points, and I'm not sure if the slide is there or not. No, let's go to the next. Yeah, okay. How can we accomplish this, you and I? Number one, write this down. Number one, first, we can pray. First, we can pray. I pray for Joe Biden on a regular basis. I pray that he can read the prompter, find the words, find his, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not really kidding. That is, I, I can't help it. It's obvious, okay? I mean, I, it's a, okay, it's a cheap joke, but the reality is we're all in on the joke, so it's not really a joke, so don't send me an email about that. And I'll let you in on a small secret. I wish God would send us a Democrat that was rational. At least give me a good argument. You know Bill Clinton couldn't even run as a Democrat today. JFK could not run as a Democrat today. They'd be Republicans today. That's how far over we've shifted. That's not in my notes, by the way. I give you that for free. I bring this to your attention, though, because here's my issue. And it should be your issue, too. Let's not argue over somebody's deficiency. We all know Biden has deficiencies. I, I, you, there's no, if you're saying Biden doesn't have deficiencies, you're open your eyeballs. The scripture does not tell us, if you have a good leader, pray for them. The scripture tells us, pray for your leaders. Period, the end. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are instructed clearly and without doubt to offer prayers to God on behalf of those who are in power. Now, I want you to remember something. When Paul wrote this verse, we're talking about Caligula, Domitian. We're talking about Caesars that are crazy. We're not talking about a Democrat. We're not talking about a libertarian. We're not talking about a Republican. We're talking about murderous savages. And Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, first of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people and for kings and everyone in high positions. He does not qualify this verse with a statement that says, here's the condition on which you can offer prayer. If you like them, if they vote according to you, what you think should be voted for. We're not allowed to do that. We have to pray for everyone. Even Buttigieg, while he's on leave, because he and his partner got a child through surrogacy. The madness 
the madness is stupefying. When you say it out loud, it's like, we're in trouble. How can we pray for people who are in leadership? How can we pray for people who may or may not know Jesus? How can we pray for people that may or may not vote according to our policy preference? We can pray for their salvation, number one. Number two, we can pray for their moral conscience. We can pray for their moral conscience. It would be foolish and unwise of us to say that there aren't some people who are not Christians but still have a conscientious way of leading their state or the government or whatever the case might be. There are people who don't know Jesus who are making decisions that, hey, I, I, I support that. I support that decision. And why would it be so foreign to us? We are not in Iran. This is the United States of America. A bunch of Puritans came over here in the Mayflower. They loved the Bible. They preached the unadulterated word of God. They wanted a nation that was free from any influence of a governing authority telling you, you can't use this Bible, you can't use that Bible, you can't preach like this, and you can't meet in a church like that. And they said, we're going to leave. Because there comes a time when you disobey man so that you can obey God. So when people who are not Christians in our country live lives that look an awful lot like what we would say would be a Christian moral life, it should not surprise us. The roots of our country, everybody says this, America doesn't have Christian roots. America has imperfect roots, okay? We really, we really botched it up with the whole chattel slavery thing, okay? There's no way around that. You cannot explain sin away. And yes, a lot of the guys who were owners of slaves were whipping slaves while they were reading the Bible. It's just sinful and wrong, but we are obligated as Christians to call right right and wrong wrong and realize the fact that even though we have things in our history that we are ashamed and embarrassed of, we were still started with a bunch of guys who had Bibles. So we should not be surprised when we see the ebb and flow, regardless of what political party someone may be affiliated with. We should pray for that moral conscience. And finally, we should pray for their wisdom. God, give our leaders wisdom. Second, not only should we pray, but we should grow wiser and wiser. I know that it isn't the most exciting thing to be up to speed on what's happening politically, but if you are not up to speed on what's happening politically and you do not read and study your Bible, you are useless. And I don't mean that you as a person, you're useless. In this matter, you are not a help. Because you are not called by God to say, well, that's not what I believe. What you believe is not relevant. What does the Bible say? That's the question. What does the Bible say? Get wiser and wiser. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
We've got to get close to the Lord. We've got to learn who he is. We've got to grow in grace and truth. We've got to learn the issues. We've got to study, and we've got to put them into practice. Third, we can represent God's truth to the world with love. How can we accomplish this? We can pray. We can grow wiser and wiser. And thirdly, we can represent God's truth to the world with love. Do you know that you have no power at all whatsoever to change someone's heart? Can't do it. Only God has that power. But he's calling us to represent him well. He's calling us to represent him faithfully. So if you bump into somebody who disagrees with you on every single point, quote the Bible, say the Bible says, and be nice. If they raise their voice at you and they call you a bigot and a homophobe and a transphobic person and they say that, etc., 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 quote the Bible to them and be nice. Because at the end of the day, whether or not they agree with you might not be the issue. At the end of the day, it might be the impression that you leave. So whether or not somebody agrees with you, you need to walk away from a conversation with a conscience that's clear, having given them the truth, but not having been a jerk. There is no verse in the scripture that says, thou shalt be a jerk to an unbeliever. We have to have tough minds and tender hearts. We have to have sharp minds and soft hearts. We have to have quick minds and quiet hearts. Whatever helps you to comprehend the importance of the balance that you should have as a Christian, please hear me when I say this. Your mind should be an iron trap of issues for God. Your heart should be receptive and sincere and compassionate. We should be merciful with people, but merciless with the truth. In closing, let me say this. In the 1930s, the prime minister of England was Neville Chamberlain, and he was pacifying and sympathizing and negotiating with a regime that was on the rise and led by a very charismatic leader named Adolf Hitler. And because of his pacifying, because of his negotiating, because of his postponing the inevitable, World War II eventually happened. But there was a light in the fog. There was a horn that was sounding in the fog. And his name was Winston Churchill. When the situation finally became so severe that every member of parliament said, we have to take a different direction, even the ones that didn't like him said, the only person who said this was going to happen was Churchill. I bring this to your attention not only because I love history and Churchill is like a hero of mine, but because I want you to be a light in the darkness. I want you to be a horn sounding in the fog. 
You might not be popular. Churchill was not popular in that time. But oh, did he become popular quick. When everybody realized that he was led by conviction, regardless of whether or not it was popular. 